Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Tony Giddens, uh, former director of the LSE, and it's my pleasure to welcome everyone here this afternoon um, to this conference to celebrate, honour, but also possibly have a little critical assessment of the work of Professor Richard Sennett. Um, Professor Sennett, by in reckoning, is one of the foremost intellectuals in the world, I think. He's had an extraordinary global impact through the proliferation of writings he's produced over the past, um, let me say, few years. Well, reasonable number, large number of years. <laughs> and um, he, he, he's an intellectual uh, to my taste because he doesn't just confine his ideas to the academy. Um, he has a strong interest in public policy, in speaking to a much wider audience uh, than an academic one and that is part of the purpose of this first panel, to discuss the intersection between intellectual creativity and public life. Um, I first met Richard when he was playing old Dick Senate, when I went to New York um, before the beginning of time, when I'd just uh, written a book called The Class Structure of the Advanced Societies, deservedly now forgotten by history. Richard. <laughs> Well, Richard had written this fantastic book that I didn't know about at the time, before I met him, called The Hidden Injuries of Class. Much more original and interesting than mine, and it has stood the test of time, and there it is in print, I think, um, up to this very day. I gave this speech at NYU, and this, uh, you won't believe this now to look at him, but this very shaggy-looking person with the hair sort of sticking out all over the place came up to me and started spraying all these names around, you know, saying he knew Susan Sontag and so on and so on. I said, go on, you don't know Susan Sontag. <laughs> and, and he proved it a little while later by taking me up to dinner, not only with Susan Sontag, but also with Jürgen Habermas. I don't know if you remember that evening. He um, was the, well, maybe it never happened then, because he's shaking his head. <laughs> Maybe you don't know Susan Sontag, but well, she seemed to be there to me. And he was also running this um, uh, quite extraordinary institution, I think, called the Institute for the Humanities in New York, which was kind of defending the arts and defending literature at a time when they were under considerable strain and attack. And I think this is a very important part of Richard's uh, public uh, career. Um, he's been at the LSE, I think, since 1999. Um, he's had a major impact on the London School of Economics. I'd like to thank him for all the help he gave me during my time here. Um, he will recall that one of his major initiatives, along with Ricky Burdett, I'm sure is sitting in the audience somewhere, the Cities Programme at the LSE, was extremely difficult to get off the ground in the beginning. We had no funding for it, and I did my little bit to try and help it, but Richard's very good fundraiser and one of the things, and the city's program is now dramatically successful with major impact and a major program studying cities around the world. Um, so I think Richard is now an academic governor of the LSE since about 2006, and uh, he's just been a, a, a really significant figure in this institution but within the wider world. Well, we've got an equally, well, I won't say equally, but distinguished panel to discuss Richard's writings, sitting here in front of you. 
Um, Professor Judy Wiseman, head of the sociology department, famous for her writings on feminism and technology. I'm very pleased to meet you, Judy, for the first time. This is Craig Calhoun, equally eminent uh, sociologist uh, with a very, very strong international reputation. Bruno Latour, probably the most celebrated philosopher of science and technology uh, of the current period. Alan Rusperger, um, editor of The Guardian, um, major influence on, on British society and culture. Uh, Richard has published, I believe, quite widely in The Guardian. And you're both members of some string quartet, or is it a rock group? I can't remember, but they, they, they have a certain set of musical tastes in common anyway. So I'm going to give each speaker 15 minutes to uh, discuss the topic of public policy in relation to Richard's writings. After that, we'll have about a quarter of an hour left uh, for open questions from the floor. So uh, I'd like to ask all the panelists to try to stick as closely as they can to the allocated time limit. Beyond that, uh, the, the uh, afternoon stretches off into infinity. Richard once told me he knew the Archbishop of Canterbury. I said, yeah, you don't know the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> but it seems that he does because the Archbishop is coming to have a dialogue with Richard uh, to wind up these proceedings. So there you have an extraordinary, well-rounded, massively distinguished intellectual career, which we're here to celebrate as well as dissect. So I turn first to... Judy Wiseman to uh, make the first intervention. I will give them all a clap. Thanks very much, Tony. I must say it gives me great, great pleasure to open up this panel discussing Richard's work. He's been a source of inspiration to me throughout my entire career as a sociologist of economic life. One of the central tenets of sociology is that people's work experience and how they understand it are essential in producing their self-identity, that work provides status, dignity, and the opportunity for personal development. And no one has explored these issues with more creativity and compassion than Richard Sennett. Richard's writings have always highlighted the role of work in shaping one's sense of self, in giving purpose and meaning to life, and crucially, its centrality to dignity. For founding sociologists such as Marx, Weber and Durkheim, both the structure and experience of work, and particularly the division of labour, were fundamental to building the ties that actually bind people together. And I see Richard very much in this sociological tradition. In fact, rereading the three books uh, that I want to talk about briefly uh, in my few minutes today, The Hidden Injuries of Class, The Corrosion of Character, and The Craftsman, I was very conscious of Marx's concept of alienation and Durkheim's writings of anime echoing through these texts. I first read The Hidden Injuries of Class when it was hot off the press and I was a PhD student in Cambridge. And fortunately, I met Richard during this time when he was visiting the UK. And the book made a huge impression on me. And indeed, the very first thing I published was a review of the book in the 1978 edition of the Sociological Review, where I described the book as provocative and innovative. 
breaking out of the confines of normal academic boundaries. I was a young socialist then, active in the labour movement, and what struck me powerfully about that book was its evocation of the human consequences of the American class system. Richard and his co-author Jonathan Cobb's unique ability to convey the emotional lives of ordinary people was quite unlike any other writing about workers at the time. He went way beyond the easy truths of surveys and questionnaires, paying close attention to the language his subjects themselves use to describe the experiences of class relations. And the image he projects is that of middle-aged manual workers emerging from the isolation of the ethnic village and confronting in an ambivalent and often painful way the values of the dominant culture. For Richard, it is not so much the material costs of class that shape his subjects, but the psychological costs. Class is a factor that conditions their most intimate lives, and their sense of loss and personal failure, their search for dignity, is what he renders so sensitively. The only comparable book at that time was by Studs Terkel, and I notice it came out the same year, actually. Studs Terkel's famous book where he was interviewing workers as well and presenting their own authentic voices. But Richard went much further than this in combining this fine-tuned listening with a sociological analysis. That is, he's not only portraying workers' feelings, but also allowing us to understand why their dreams take the form they do, such as the common desire to set up their own business. As a child of migrant parents who'd witnessed the hard graft involved in self-employment, I'd always found this dream perplexing. But Richard's analysis of these manual workers powerfully evokes the painful, destructive effects that the internalization of class has on their self-respect. That book was published in 1971, and the form of industrial capitalism that Richard was describing then is hard to recall. The intervening decades have seen the demise of working class solidarity and the expansion of services, the globalization of production, lots of changes, and indeed it's often claimed now that people are less concerned about, interested in, or committed to work that work is now purely an instrumental activity and that people are working simply in order to consume, that consumption is now the basis of identity. Now, I do not subscribe to this view, and neither, I'm happy to say, does Richard. Undaunted by the hype about our consumer society, he again placed work as the core of identity with his brilliant portrayal of the personal consequences of the new capitalism in the corrosion of character. Now I must say that it's a pretty good thing to write one book that captures the zeitgeist, but to do it again almost three decades later is really an incredible achievement. As the title suggests, here Richard argues that the loss of the long term in the new capitalism is producing a crisis of character. Whereas in the old economy there was predictability, careers, the capacity to develop skills, and these somehow sustained character. In modern work that is uh, insecure and unpredictable, we now have an increasingly lost workforce, unable to, st to sustain the relationships needed for a developed social identity. And this is a very hard sort of thing to capture, 
But in quintessential Richard's style, he dramatizes the huge transformations from the old to the new capitalism with his opening story about meeting the son of a worker he'd interviewed for Hidden Injuries of Class. I think we all feel like we know Enrico, an immigrant janitor whose sense of self-respect derived from a linear narrative of working hard and providing for his family. His affluent son, Rico, is a consultant whose labor is episodic and short-term, and the loss of the long-term, the loss of a career, the need to be constantly fluid and flexible has left the son feeling anxious about his ability to provide a model of ethical, committed behavior for his own children. In Richard's words, if I could state Rico's dilemma more largely, short-term capitalism threatens to corrode his character, particularly those qualities of character which bind human beings to one another and furnishes each with a sense of sustainable self. I found the book particularly compelling because it, by coincidence, I was myself involved in a research project looking at the changing nature of managerial careers in post-bureaucratic organizations. And in my interviews, I too encountered the anxiety about the shift of market risks and responsibility onto individuals. But while certainly Richard captured the mood of the time, in my view, the pessimism of his prognosis was exaggerated. I think he underplays the positive freeing dimensions of this move to individualization, which Tony Giddens had highlighted in his work on reflexive modernization. Serial employment for those who can take advantage of the labor market may well furnish new forms of identity freed from traditional normative and institutional constraints. <coughs> Be that as it may, the corrosion of character deservedly won numerous prizes and gained a wide popular readership. And part of Richard's achievement is the way he bridges different worlds and speaks to audiences beyond the usual academic terrain, which is, I'm sure, a theme that um, Alan will pick up on this panel. I remember to go, going to all sorts of people's um, homes at the time, and the book was around everywhere. And for many of them, it really opened the door onto sociology, for which I'm very grateful. On reflection, what strikes me about this book and the one of 30 years earlier is the common theme that workers can't get no satisfaction, as one of our alumni, very famous alumni, would have put it. The shift from blue-collar to white-collar managerial work has not resolved the problem. How we can attain, in Richard's words, interesting and meaningful work with a degree of responsible autonomy and recognize social esteem and respect. Perhaps Richard's more recent book on the craftsman provides some clues. This book is really about time, the time it takes to obtain a skill and the satisfaction of exercising it. Here he returns to the pre-modern experience of making handcrafted goods, stressing that people learn about themselves, anchor themselves in material reality through this process of making things. For Richard, one of the most insidious features of the time culture of the new capitalism is the assumption that work is in part of life, that it's merely a way of making money. 
And here he draws on Hannah Arendt's distinction, his teacher, I gather, from rereading the book. Hannah Arendt's distinction between two forms of life, that in one life we make things, and in another higher way of life we stop producing and start judging and discussing. For Arendt, the mind engages once labour is done. Not so for Richard. He argues that thinking and feeling are contained within the process of making. And the issue then becomes not only of limited work hours, but rather asking broader questions about how work can be made more human. Rereading the book again, I find that it really um, speaks to my current preoccupations. And I was saying to Richard that whenever I reread the books, I read them very differently and kind of they seem to have resonance with whatever I'm working on at the time. And this has been the case throughout my career. So at the moment, I'm actually working on the relationship between technology and time and thinking a lot about the widespread sense that we're living in an accelerating society. And I work on mobile phones and the internet, and I'm interested in the way these feed the perception that somehow speed is sexy and being slow, taking one's time, is dull. Richard is not frightened to take this on and in The Craftsman advocates the value of acquiring skills that take many hours to perfect. I recall you say it takes about 10,000 hours or three hours a day for 10 years to really um, ingrain a complex skill. The Craftsman is another lovely book, a pleasure to read, although I don't altogether share Richard's nostalgia for craft workers as the last bastion of dignity and autonomy at work. He uses the example of Linux, Linux programmers engaged in creative, generative work. And this did certainly resonate for me. But I did wonder a bit about his focus on being absorbed in making things on technical skills independent from people skills. In the service sector, for example, Women do much caring work involving emotions and deep absorption, which seem to me to fit very well, really, with Richard's discussion on the unity of, of head and hand. And indeed, successful computer programmers know that in order to design very good information systems, you need to be thinking about relationships between people as much as technical skills. And in fact, these things are inextricably linked. In my view, while Richard describes his project as cultural materialism, he doesn't really reflect, this is my heaviest criticism, I promise, he doesn't really reflect, I don't think, on the way technology mediates all social relations. And uh, this is the point I've left Bruno um, to elaborate because I'm sure he will. Doesn't even understand. I'm leaving. I'm doing work and employment, and Bruno will do science and technology studies. That's our division of labour here. The final point I would make about Richard's work, which I've written about actually, is the predominance of male voices in his narratives. But in Richard's inimitable way, whenever I have raised this with him, he assures me that he just does this, so he's left something for me to do. <laughs> May I end by saying, as the current head of the sociology department, what an honour and pleasure it's been having Richard in the department. Building friendships with colleagues takes time. Maybe not 10,000 hours, but I think it takes a lot of time. And I'm glad that Richard and I have had the time to form a close bond. 
Similarly, he's been part of the life of the London School of Economics for many years now, and I'm sure he'll continue to be with us in every way. Thanks. Craig Cahoon has just given a new meaning to just-in-time production, because he just typed that while he was listening to what Julian said. It be interesting to see how profound it can be. <laughs> or otherwise. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Why? No, I'm happy to, to embrace that quasi-introduction because uh, not only do I, I love my computer, but it is, of course, a, a Senate-like computer. I've ensured that Richard himself now has one. He, he lived for a time hampered by a IBM Windows existence and needed an Apple existence, needed to integrate design with practice, to have a computer about which one could feel a sense of intimacy, but which one could also use in public life. A computer which um, uh, could be thought of as a kind of uh, craftsman's cultural object and not simply a, a pure matter of instrumentality. But enough of my computer. <laughs> Let me begin really by thanking the LSE um, thank you, the LSE, for giving Richard some wonderful years because I have enjoyed and gained vicarious pleasure in how much Richard has enjoyed his existence here um, with you and in the city, how much he has um, uh, gained uh, enthusiasm as well as connection to particular contacts here. Um, and that's terrific. Let me thank the LSE also for receiving from Richard some wonderful years. I actually am more ambivalent about that. I slightly resent the amount of that reception that took place on this side of the Atlantic. But also Richard's work, which I've had the chance through our Nylon Project and others to see embodied in students and colleagues who have benefited from his personal warmth, his cultural breadth, his intellectual seriousness, and the public engagement that he brings to his work. And I thank the LSE for having the good sense to organize this event and the unpredictable uh, politeness to invite me. With his typically gracious manner, Richard suggested that I ought to speak today about myself and my own work. Knowing Richard well, however, I thought he wouldn't mind if I spoke about him. <laughs> and maybe a little bit about social science and the world. Richard is a remarkable scholar and researcher, sociologist and urbanist. He has a PhD in American studies who experienced his move to Britain as a true homecoming. He became part of the British scene in a profound, influential, and I think very happy way. Richard is a flaneur who loves London's streets and those of cities around the world. Indeed, he is Baudelaire's sort of urbanist, one whose strongest engagement with cities is at street level. Richard is also a salonier, or as is sometimes said here, he is eminently clubbable. At home over a good single malt, or sipping a French red, and prepared to tell you about the provenance of whichever one he is drinking and why it is distinctively the best that could be acquired. He is the sort of person 
whom you want to invite to dinner and whom you hope will invite you. And if you are lucky, there will be music, for Richard is a talented cellist who studied at Juilliard before hand injuries sent him into the humanities and social sciences, a kind of permanent purgatory of which he has made the best, and to the University of Chicago and Harvard, and on ultimately to the LSE and MIT and NYU and so forth. Richard is also a listener of thoughtful depth and real distinction. And I mean that, first of all, I wrote that down, as a listener to music. That is, that part of the pleasure of music with Richard is Richard's listening, his ear, his knowledge, his ability to comment on everything from the history of intonation through to the way in which changing librettos have shaped um, the meaning of a particular opera. But I mean that also in friendship, and I mean that also in his sociological work. A lot of it is based on very good listening. But above all, Richard is a writer. He is a writer mainly in the morning, in order to leave time and mental resources for all the walking, drinks, dinners, and music. But he is a writer first. This sets him apart from many other social scientists. He is simply better, I think, but more than that, he conceives the enterprise differently. He writes not simply to record the results of research, to engrave timeless truths into an imaginary record, but to communicate, to be read. I say parenthetically to you, many of you are probably social scientists, you might consider this possibility that one of the purposes in writing, one of the things that ought to shape the nature of your prose, is the hope that others will read it and possibly even find that experience pleasurable. <laughs> I don't believe this is taught here or at any other university. You could innovate in social science by emphasizing the existence of readers. <laughs> For Richard, informed by his life in music, writing is a performance. Jealous colleagues think it is simply a matter of talent. These are often the same people who think great teachers simply have attractive personalities and fail to see the roles of preparation, effort, and a real desire to help students. They forget what Richard knows, that writing is a matter of practice. Not just in the sense that one must practice to do it well, though that is true, but in the sense of a professional practice. A deployment of tools and devices, knowledge and sensibility, in order to do a certain kind of work. Like an architect's practice, or a medical practice. Writing a book, like other crafts, is a matter of thinking in the process of making. It involves less manual dexterity. I have seen Richard type as well as play the cello. But when done well, it is craft work. Craft work of the kind that Richard has described so well in his books, but I want to suggest practiced so well in creating the books. As a writer, Richard has a marvelous style, inviting, conversational, a bit like the best sort of tutorial a privileged university student could imagine. His discourse is learned, but the erudition is never an end in itself. The references to Diderot and Fichte, 
Levinas and Proust, Jane Jacobs and Le Corbusier are there to help you learn to think. Each book says, in effect, think this way. A little bit like the character in Young Frankenstein who says, walk this way. <laughs> but Richard's message really is think this way. Think, right? The books are an invitation to think. They do not say, the authorial voice never says, I have learned everything and now I am going to explain it to you. That's what Jürgen Habermas says, but not what Richard says about the public sphere. Richard's books do not say there is a system, and if you master and unlock this Hegelian system, you will have the key to everything. Richard's books invite you to think. They offer you resources with which to think. They invite you to think in a way that he has discovered is interesting and useful, possibly morally and publicly profound, but they invite you to think with him and at their best, they carry the sum of the same kind of eagerness Richard's friends occasionally are treated to when Richard says, I've just, I've just figured it out. I'm working on the book, and I know now it's fallen into place. The penny has just dropped. It's clicked. It's about this. Now, in the course of Richard's writing of books, it may be about several different thises, but the excitement right, is something that comes through in this, the excitement of being able to think newly about issues. Now, Richard's references to Diderot and all the others, Diderot's a particular favorite who frequently crops up, do impress you, but this isn't gratuitous name dropping, precisely because each reference comes with an invitation into the community of those who think. When each book says, think this way, right, it is as much about the thinking as about following the way. Think about capitalism, for example, in terms of the lives it offers those who work in its businesses, whether as janitors or bankers or admin or executives. Don't forget the economics, but don't let your vision be reduced to an alleged bottom line of profit margins or GDP and fail to see that this capitalism is a system that creates and distributes and forecloses not just wealth, but opportunities to live, to formulate plans, to find a purpose and a meaning for your life, a community with others, or a connection to future generations. Or think of authority, another of Richard's books, less famous but one of my personal favorites. Think of authority not just as a form of domination, but a modality of respect. Recall the ideas of personal dignity that were implicit in practices like addressing colleagues and even friends as Mr. or Mrs., Professor or Doctor, Master or Maestro, who rather than to. Think of cities, not just as efficient or inefficient, magnificent or mundane, but as sites to hear, smell, see, and feel the presence of others, a presence that may be public or private, frightening or reassurance, reassuring, congested into traffic, mediated by membranes that give shape to neighborhoods, open to the flaneur. Think of the ways in which cities nurture or debase public life. Don't just privilege the familiar and private, but don't imagine 
that the public is merely the exposed or the numerous or the lowest common denominator. See how the public is performed. And in Richard's account of the public, it is always crucial, as so many others forget, to keep the performative dimension in mind. Performances shaped by culture and tradition and skill and creativity. The skill, the creativity of designers, architects and urban planners, of visionaries of various kinds who think about what cities could be without ever building a building, and of the ordinary people who make them live in their practices. Richard has been famous for nearly 40 years. I think, in fact, that he was already famous among his growing circles of intimates before he reached a larger public in print, having known a few of those people that he introduced Tony and Judy and others to, I think that Richard was already somebody talked about by others and famous in that sense. But it was the publication of The Hidden Injuries of Class in 1972 that brought him wider fame. The diagnosis in that book that Judy's already briefly described was in certain ways distinctively American. It was rooted in Tocqueville's observation of how in America people enjoyed distinctive equality, not least in manners, yet were constantly comparing themselves to their neighbors and judging themselves harshly for any deficiencies. The Hidden Injuries of Class was about the way that workers in America experienced the class structure, even while they blocked the existence of that class structure from their ideology, from their self-understanding, denying it. You know, we're all middle class. They experienced the losses in their lives, the home mortgage they couldn't get, the job from which they were laid off. They experienced their subaltern position in general in that class structure as somehow their own fault. <clears throat> and this was the most profound of the hidden injuries of class, the self-inflicted injury of thinking that your position was due to your own responsibilities or your own failings. If they had no savings, it must be because they lacked self-discipline. If they didn't go to university, this was due to their lack of talent or virtue. If they felt they had no control over their lives, they had no one to blame but themselves. It is one of the tragedies of the 40 years during which Richard has been famous that his diagnosis has become much more global, much more profound even than it was in 1972. That the privatization of risk and responsibility to which Judy alluded has become so widely the condition of a new capitalism that, in general, the condition he analyzed as specific to America has become endemic to global capitalism and indeed even worsened. The culture of the new capitalism, as Richard has reported, has spread the insecurity and self-doubt that workers often experienced to the middle and privileged classes. At the same time, the institutions and tacit social contracts that gave a semblance of security to workers under the older capitalism have been dissolved. It is harder for parents to make sense of their own work and sacrifices by expectations for the upward mobility of their children. But the issue is not, as so many sociologists long assumed, merely mobility or even inequality itself. It is lives in which one can find meaning 
or in which it becomes very hard to see the meaning of the work and the labor, the investments and the sacrifices. Richard has studied these issues first and foremost as an acute, sensitive observer, and secondly, through a range of interviews and more generally, conversations. It's customary at the beginning of a book based on interviews to say how many subjects were interviewed and to enumerate and count the interviews. I did 56 interviews of an hour each using this list of questions. You won't find that in Richard's books. That, one may suspect, is because Richard did not work in that manner. That Richard conducted far more interviews and far more intensive interviews because every conversation he had while he was working on the book was part of the research, as well as those in depth and detail that he returned to over and over Craig, again. Craig, the, the I understand. <laughs> Richard watches, he listens, he does so empathetically. He's not a man of long protocols. But he is able to get people to tell their stories, to open up what they care about and worry about. They do so because he is interested in them and their stories, and these become the resources for the books, never just their data. Importantly, their sources. Richard's studies have always been what is now fashionable to call public sociology. This has always had several dimensions, reaching broader publics because they read, reaching policymakers with ideas, connecting politics, culture, and social theory. They've also had a reflexive moment, noting the limits, the paradoxes, and the unintended consequences of social movements. I won't read out the quotation, but the way in which he begins the culture of new capitalism, noting what the radicals of the 1960s wanted and what they actually got, and the somewhat perverse relationship between the two. All of this is related to the sort of public policy and public life Richard seeks and values, our, our focus here. And it's related to Richard as a teacher. So since my time is up, I'll close with just two words on each. The sort of public policy and public life Richard seeks is for grown-ups. He wants a government policy and a political discussion for grown-ups. And he thinks that much of the way in which we create policy and the way in which we discuss it is for children, is infantilizing, is conducted not only in a paternalistic way, but in a way that systematically addresses each of us and constitutes us less as grown-ups. We should have less pandering, less bypassing of reason on the way to emotion, more insistence on the idea that everyone can think and should. Richard shows much of the influence of Hannah Arendt in his approach to making a world in common. As a teacher, Richard's focus is on enabling students to speak and write as well as do research to enable them to be among the makers of the world in common through their work by bringing out their voices. His students will know, he asks repeatedly, where are you in this text? He asks about the engagements that make it matter. He calls for specifics that will make it pleasurable and potentially memorable. The connection between Richard as a teacher and Richard thinking about the public sphere and participating in the public sphere is meaningful and mediated by Richard, the writer. Somebody who is not doing this to show off but to communicate. Somebody who is able to make it work 
whether it is the teaching or the column in the Guardian or the book of 600 pages, by an invitation to join with him in thinking better and articulating this in order to make a better world in common. That's the public life of Richard Sennett. Thank you. This is very odd. I know. Couldn't figure it out either. Well, I will show. Oh. <laughs> well, I, I mean, this is pretty strange, but anyway. I want to speak. Um, it's good because talking about technology. Yeah, yeah, it's a good beginning. <laughs> Since uh, it's a retirement and supposed to be a bit uh, sad, I thought it would be better to talk about the three other books, or the two other books in the same series as The Craftsman. Can you make sure that the mic is picking you up? I'm sure it is, yes. You hear me? Yeah. Uh, because in the, in the latest book, Craftsman, two other books are announced, and they are both, uh, the three of them are put under the auspices of Pandora. Now, of course, Pandora is known by the Greek, but also by Avatar, uh, you know, this film. <laughs> this film which has been made by your Prime Minister's uh, homonym, I understand, Cameron. <laughs> um, except Avatar is much better known than your Prime Minister. <laughs> and well, he's not my Prime Minister. He's not. <laughs> he is. No, he is. No, it's just a joke. He is. <laughs> Anyway, in this, uh, the planet is called Pandora. Now, I thought, of course, Pandora uh, planet was actually robbed by Cameron, Cameron, the filmmaker, from a book I wrote <laughs> called Pandora's Hope. But there is a very interesting uh, imagination now of how will uh, Richard Sennett means, meets Pandora as a planet. In other words, my little talk is about, uh, I think the best description is Richard Sennett meeting uh, Gaia. The reason why I think of that because of a book in The Craftsman is actually a very interesting uh, advance against uh, sort of a renewal of materialism. I mean, this is the, the thing which uh, interests us in science studies uh, a lot. The notion of skill, of course, is a very interesting notion because it's the one which uh, is linking two completely unrelated set efficacy, of course, innovation on the one hand, but also care and precautions. So there is a very interesting moment, and we are living for a very interesting moment now, which is the ecological crisis uh, time, when we have to live simultaneously inventing a definition of materiality, which is new because it has all of the uh, beautiful, exuberant aspect of technological progress on the one hand, but a completely different, hooked up on a completely different set of, of uh, intention and moods, which here care and uh, precaution. And I'm very interested for that reason in the book, which is called The Stranger, which is the third in the series, which is not yet written, uh, which is about Pandora as a planet, so to speak. As you know, there is um, in the book by the craftsman a, a story about Frankenstein. I mean, that's necessary when you speak of Pandora, you have to meet Frankenstein. 
But you also know that in the story of Mary Shelley, Mary Shelley was writing this book because of a volcano ash, actually, which uh, stuck her <laughs> inside uh, of the Chamonix Valley for the whole summer. There was absolutely not one single day of sun because of the volcano ash. And she wrote this strange book, which is always misunderstood. And actually, Frankenstein himself, with the doctor who made the thing, as you know, apologized for having innovated. And he apologized for having innovated uh, and say, well, I will not innovate it. I go back home. I will stop innovating. And of course, the whole book is about the fact that this guy is actually uh, apologizing for sin, hiding a much worse sin. And I think that's where Richard Sennett's, uh, I should say, deontology or morality goes. The real sin of Frankenstein is, of course, of, of having abandoned his creature. And this is the hidden sin which is hiding through apologizing for another sin, I innovated. No, no, it's not that you innovated which problem, it's that you abandoned your creator and fled in horror after what you have said. Well, Richard Sennett doesn't flee from our own creation. And I think that's why there is a deeply religious argument there, although it doesn't speak much of religion in this book, which is uh, how can we renovate our connection with Frankenstein, sorry, in a very different way. That is, we have created all these things, now we should not let them go bad. And that's the point, and very briefly, I think there are three uh, elements in this uh, big project, one on materiality, the other on morality, and the third on public life. I'll go very fast because I have not much time to go. On materiality, one of the strangest things that we discover in science studies and in Richard's work is how little materialist we are, how difficult it is to be materialist, in other words. And there are, even though there are few references uh, in, in, the book, uh, in the books of Richard to science practices, there are quite a lot of them nonetheless. And as you know, a large part of science studies has been about recovering the practice from the science. And then when you recover the practice from science and engineering, you get a completely different def de definition of what is materiality. We, we have difficulty being materialist. And when we think we are materialists, we forget lots of other things, like the people who are doing the material, and of course, like the skills. So one of the very important aspects of Richard's work for me is this rematerialization where matter doesn't appear as it is too often in the modernist uh, discourse, which is in fact a very idealist definition of matter. So there is a, that's why I think we share the pragmatist tradition and that pragmatism is our common uh, uh, source. What is so important also is that there is nothing nostalgic in, in the work of, of Richard when he deals with uh, modern technology. And in all of the book, you will see as many examples of modern technology like CAD design uh, or Linus, as, as uh, Judy mentioned, as they are from potters and, and weavers and all of these people. What is, of course, very important for the morality aspect is that in the work on materiality, we are made by what we do. So even though there is slight differences between some argument uh, about the making, the anthropomorphizing of technology is not a mistake. We are made, the shape of the anthropos is made by the thing that they have done. So it's not that we project unduly on our computer, like enthusiastic Craig just showed it a few minutes ago. <laughs> Uh, on the computer is that Greg has the shape that the computer, the Apple computer, gave him in part. I mean, not all. <laughs> so the fact that anth this anthropomorphic relation is very important because it, we often say, no, we should not project things on, we should not be animated, we should not animate matters because that's a sin. No, it's exactly the opposite. We are made by the thing we do. And this is why it's so important to be able to uh, actually 
extract from practices the good and the bad practice. And the whole book, which is called The Craftsman, is in fact quite related to the fall of a public man, if you look at it in some ways, which is there is a way which is very difficult to get into philosophy of, of morality or philosophy of science and philosophy of public life, which is the difference, not the difference between is it fabricated and is it not fabricated, but is it well fabricated or badly fabricated. And the, the whole discourse shifted somewhere else. It's not the silly notion of coming back to nature. The question is, how can we extract from practice the difference between good and bad uh, practice? And I think that's a lot of why it's so important to get into skill. The final point is about public life. What's the link between technology and public life? It disappears entirely in the bifurcated world, as Whitehead would say, when you have on the one hand primary quality which are known by science, and on the other side all the subjective aspects of, of which are be be best found in art. And uh, I'd say that Richard Sennett is not bifurcated I mean, even though he's not a uh, philosopher of Whiteidian persuasion, he has the same source, which is pragmatism, as I said before. And the idea that this bifurcation between primary and secondary quality, in fact, never occurred when you look to practice. Now, the problem is, why is it that it's so difficult to learn from practice? Why is it so difficult that practice and the whole tradition of pragmatism has disappeared, as you know from philosophy quite a lot before, now it's reappearing a little bit, but it's always very, very hard to get practice being visible in the eyes of the theoretician and the uh, philosophers. And I think that one of the reasons is that the language of critique that we use in order to talk about this new materiality is actually very ill-adapted to the task. I mean, think of the words which are criticized as much, criticized in good sense, by uh, Richard and which will carry us absolutely nowhere. Reification, but of course, but the rest is extremely important, the thing themselves. Objectification, it's good to be an object, it's not a bad thing. Uh, marchandization, commodification, is very good and very complicated to make commodities. And you can't begin a critique of, of capitalism if you begin to use commodification as a way to criticize capitalism, because it's very, very a skill also in making commodities. So we have a whole vocabulary, a critical vocabulary that cut absolutely no ice. In fact, because we don't, it doesn't retrieve critique. To be reified, when you go to a hospital, you want to be objectified. You don't want to be psychologized. I mean, you want people to get to understand. So there is something completely silly in the language of critique, which is applied to these very important features. How do we retrieve? Um, how do we retrieve practice? And retrieving practice is probably the most important uh, thing, especially. And I'll finish on that before uh, Tony stops me. That uh, got five more minutes. Oh, that's great. So then I can finish on Pandora's. Back to Pandora's. <laughs> Uh, I was struck, very struck by Pandora's, I mean, I've always been struck by the, the, the Greek myth, but I was very struck by the final, the post-penultimate image in Avatar, which is when uh, the, the people have to withdraw from the planet Pandora, as you know. I mean, they withdraw, I, I assume you have seen the film. Yeah. Ah, okay. <laughs> I was slightly worried that you had not seen the film. Which is, of course, a very powerful metaphor, the fact that we don't have a planet to live on. And at the, in the introduction of, a, of a, a craftsman, there is a promise, and this is why I think it's important to think about the promise of Richard Sennett's work, now that's free from work, I mean from one of his many uh, positions at least, 
the promise to give us the skills which he recognized we don't have to live on Pandora's, I mean on the Earth, sorry, on Pandora's, uh, the equivalent of Pandora's planet. And it's quite interesting that Cameron actually used the word Pandora's to define the planet, which is this very odd uh, type of situation where suddenly you realize that uh, the, the, the place where we live doesn't have the, uh, the size and doesn't have the uh, capacity to bear our own work. So uh, I'm very interested and I'm anticipating quite a lot from the meeting of Richard Sennett with Gaia, I mean Lovelock's Gaia, because Gaia is a very, very special type of entity for which we have absolutely no skills because Gaia look at us and it's quite indifferent to us and yet we have to learn the skills of living in this planet without like the bad guys in the Avatar having to flee the planet. It would be a very bad end of Richard Sennett's career if we all <laughs> had to do like in the film, that is pack up and go back Earth like Frankenstein <coughs> said he should. No, no, we should not go back. We should there, but like and love our technology. Thank you very much. Well, I, I feel the, the complete imposter here because I'm in no sense uh, an academic or a sociologist um, and the only sense in which I can compete at all is to wave my computer in the air, which is even better than his computer. <laughs> um, so, um, so that's my only kudos of, of, of the day. Um, and I don't feel remotely qualified to, to criticise Richard's work. Um, but I, I do want to talk about the, the sense in which my thinking... Uh, has been helped by Richard uh, in thinking of, about uh, journalism, where journalism is going, and the, uh, the, the public realm of information. Uh, and uh, I think Richard is, in the best sense of the word, um, journalistic in, in, in some of the ways that he, he writes and, and thinks and believes in communicating, um, in, including in the, in the Guardian sometimes. Uh, and I, I've um, known Richard for about 10 years, and uh, I've, I've talked a lot uh, with him about the way that I think um, that this public realm is developing in, in uh, newspapers and, and talked about The Guardian and how The Guardian should be developing and I found that incredibly helpful. Uh, and some of the, the themes that Richard's interested in about uh, technology and craft uh, and the nature of authority and this public space uh, uh, keep returning to me as I, as I think about where uh, newspapers are going. Uh, where are they going? Well, we're, we're faced with uh, this, this alarming prospect um, that the, for the first time since the Enlightenment, uh, societies are going to live without verifiable sources of information. I don't think that's too alarmist to say that because the, the signs are there everywhere in local newspapers. Uh, uh, Richard will know this from, from the uh, American press and it's happening uh, in national newspapers here. Uh, and it's pretty clear that, that uh, short-term capitalism is simply not going to uh, subsidize the, the kind of serious news that uh, enables us to hold public authorities to uh, account. So if you believe it, it's important to know what's happening in, in, in Parliament, in courts, in public authorities, uh, 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 in committees, in health authorities, 
there is this prospect that you won't have uh, the, the, the systems of information that have uh, existed since the 18th century uh, to inform you. And there's no shortage of, of people anticipating really uh, the, the bad uh, effects of that, um, not least uh, a, a rise in corruption. Uh, and it's very easy to be terribly gloomy about this. Um, but I think if, if, you, if you think about these profound shifts in this new public sphere, uh, which exists outside the, 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 the industry and the, the business that has grown up around journalism, uh, then I, I think you can see some um, uh, interesting trends. Uh, it, it, it's clear, by the way, that, that, that the subsidy model is the only thing that's going to get us through the next 10 years. So the, 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 this market model of information is not going to work in, in terms of, of, of serious uh, information uh, and, and that absolutely relates to the BBC and what that, um, what that stands for in, in, in the public realm. Uh, and uh, one should just caution against doing anything to tamper with the BBC and models like that at the moment. Uh, and, and that the, the mantra that says you only by dismantling the BBC can you let the free market um, uh, exist and that the BBC is, is some sort of block on, uh, on that developing, I think is, is, is very dangerous. So what, what is this future uh, public space beginning to uh, look like? Uh, I th think the significant trends there are to, to acknowledge the forces that are shaping it so that there are two great neutral forces, I think, which are having an effect. One, one is advertising, which is completely neutral about this public space. Um, it, it, it's become a, a little bit of dogma, a, a mantra to say that the, that the New York Times a Baghdad bureau is paid for by the Walmart advertising, and, and that was a kind of sort of cross-subsidy within newspapers that, again, since the 18th century has subsidized news. Uh, but advertising, of course, doesn't care about those values any more than the second great force, which is bearing down on us, technology. I think technology is, is, a, uh, is, a, uh, is a neutral force and completely out of our hands. It's completely out of our hands uh, about who's going to develop the next form of this, what it's going to look like, what it can do. Uh, so that leads to great and profound changes, I think, to journalism itself. And, and here you hit another theme of, or two more themes of, of Richard's. Uh, one is uh, about the, the craft of journalism. What kind of craft is it? Is, is it a craft? Uh, because I think for, for a long time journalists thought of themselves as, as, a, as a profession. Uh, but I think we have to think of what, what this craft is that we bring to it, that, that we can do, uh, that we can do well. Uh, and think of that in a, in a separate way from the notion of authority, which is another uh, theme of, of Richard's that we've heard about t today. Uh, and what does that authority mean? Is authority the same as expertise? Uh, and you'll hear journalists a lot saying, uh, particularly in the discussion of, of how you pay for all this, that, that we're the people with authority. Uh, and I doubt that that's true. I doubt that journalists do have uh, authority. Uh, I think if, if we have authority in print, it's derived from our editorial craft, that, that we have skills in, in, in editing and prioritizing. Uh, and, uh, and that worked for a long time in, in financial terms because of the scarcity of what we did. We were the mediators. Uh, you weren't. We were the gatekeepers. It was all one way. Uh, you couldn't really answer back or contribute. Uh, and it was a very top-down model. So we were the gatekeepers in the sense that we were, we were, we were disseminating, disseminating information from above. That's largely how newspapers worked. Uh, and if you get into an age in which people are very skeptical about those, those top-down models, then it's not surprising that newspapers are also in trouble. So that if you've got an anti-politics 
uh, feeling in the country, you might well get a, an anti-mainstream media feeling. Um, the, the rush to integrate um, the, the models of, of what we're doing, so the, 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 the old models which were about, uh, about authority and, uh, and about the bundling together of disparate subject matters in ways in which we could impose our authority and, and our structures on the world, uh, that rush to integrate that world with the new digital world uh, em embodied by devices like this um, has masked, I think, uh, deeper thoughts which are now emerging about the, the way in which these, these two types of information are very, very different. Uh, and they're, they're, they're all pretty obvious to anybody under the age of, of 30. I mean, uh, anybody who has seen or grown up with, with, uh, the, with Web 2.0 and what that has done to peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, communication and, and seen that blossom, uh, the idea that anybody can uh, create content and publish, anybody can share that content uh, and debate it with anybody else, how that's led to a, a complete fragmentation of the idea of one community reading one uh, newspaper. Uh, those communities completely unmediated by us uh, in, in lots of respects. They don't need us to be able to, to do that. The idea that people might respect the, the opinion of uh, their peers and, and regard that as having greater authority than anything that comes from above. Uh, and the, I, the questioning of a, a narrow canon of, uh, of opinion. So it, it's the kind of sort of Tom Friedman, the New York Times foreign affairs uh, correspondent who's going to be the, the, the authority on all things foreign. Uh, the moment you stop and think about it, it's a preposterous idea uh, and we have to move away from that pretty quickly, I think, which is what we've tried to do with, with Cometers Free, uh, the, the, the notion of, of, of one uh, middle-aged white guy in New York being the, the guy to uh, the whole world it, it is not a, a, a proposition that's going to last very long. Uh, and it's part of a, a wider questioning of, of, of authority in politics and religion uh, and skepticism not willing to take things on trust. Then there's this thing that the, that the rise of technology is going to lead to completely different types of, of storytelling of, of information. I think there's going to be a rise, a rise of data and interest in data. Uh, I think the idea of a story, a piece of narrative text, is going to be challenged and, and is going to change in, in very profound ways that we have to think about journalists. Uh, and then we have to think about how societies, uh, are, if what I've said is right so far, that, 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 the, 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 that this task that mainstream journalism used to perform since the 18th century is going to disappear, how societies are going to inform themselves. And you can see beginnings of answers in people organizing themselves in, in, in the World Wide Web uh, into in forms of uh, information uh, uh, communities. And, and I, I increasingly think of this as the, the, the mutualization of, of information. Uh, and you can see that in, in these um, not-for-profit sites like they work for you and Fix My Street, uh, in, in numerous blogs, specialist sites, in, in many manifestations of social media, uh, and in lots of local experiments of people getting together uh, to cover their own particular patch. Where does that leave? old mainstream media, well I, I think there's, there's two approaches, one is to say well that's, that's all terribly interesting all, all these developments that are happening elsewhere but that's not what we do, we're going to stick to this authority model uh, based on our authority uh, and uh, our, our craft and just say that what we do is different uh, and we, we will uh, exist behind some kind of walled garden uh, and we are uh, exceptionalist 
Uh, and the other is to say that actually this mutualized approach to information is probably an, a, a, a very, exist, uh, is very permanent uh, change in information and that we have to, uh, to experiment with that. Uh, uh, that we, we're not abandoning these crafts that we have of, of, of journalism, these skills. Uh, we have great considerable audiences. The Guardian now has an audience of something like 35 million around the world. Uh, uh, there are skills that we can do bring in terms of verification and reporting and contextualizing and <coughs> analyzing uh, about uh, communicating accessibly as Richard does in his books. Uh, not as easy as it looks, uh, but we combine that what, what with what we, what, what we can do with these very powerful trends in the way uh, the, the, the information is now working. And I think of those as, as two primary characteristics. One, one is about being open that is, that is acknowledging the way that all information is now linking together and being freely published uh, by anyone and saying we want to be part of that, linked to it uh, uh, and aggregated and, uh, and, and woven into that. And the second is to be collaborative, to work with it uh, and to harness that uh, and, and uh, uh, work out how we can uh, uh, make that a, a greater force. So how does that, what does that look like? Uh, so I'm just going to end very briefly with, with the kinds of questions that we're now asking ourselves uh, at The Guardian. And they, they again, grow out of questions that, that I've been discussing with Richard um, uh, about how all this is developing in, in media. Uh, and I think there are some characteristics of, of this new world that, that uh, we just have to move to. One is a pretty obvious one about allowing response and participation, uh, encouraging that, uh, not just responding. It's not just uh, we're going to be gracious now uh, to, to let you respond to what we do, uh, but to to let uh, the the community of people uh, around what we do uh, start something, to initiate things, to initiate debates, uh, and and for us to follow them. So it has to be. Much, le much less of a, uh, a one-way um, uh, street. Uh, we have to acknowledge this fragmentation around communities, not just allow it, but be positively interested in these communities that are, that are growing up, uh, which is completely different from that bundled product of, of, of a newspaper. And those communities might form around subjects, they might form around issues, they might form around individuals who might be our individuals or their individuals, as it were. It's that business of being open to the web, uh, about linking, collaborating with it, uh, about uh, the use of references uh, of sources and uh, technological software, hardware services. It's about uh, aggregating uh, what's going on and curating it. So it's not just simply linking out to what's going on elsewhere. It's saying to what extent can we pull uh, stuff onto, onto where we live, so a, an example would be uh, recently in what we were trying to do on the environment, we thought the environment was something the Guardian was going to be one of the, the, the big themes of our working lives, but acknowledging that even with a staff of half a dozen uh, environmental correspondents that you, you can only create a drop in the ocean, uh, and, and so harnessing the best environmental coverage and saying it, it will now sit with us, we're not, going to, we're, we're not just going to be a publisher, we're going to be a platform for that. To, to look at the question of the diversity that you get through these things, uh, but the, the, the extent to which diversity uh, exists within a framework of, of common values. 
the alter the, the completely alter nature of uh, the, the alter nature of, of publishing. So the story, which was something that existed on a day, you would write it, you would go home, and that was the end of the story. The next day, you would work on a different story. That's gone. Uh, increasingly, uh, I think journalists are involving these communities in pre-publication, and journalists are living in a world now in which the moment you've written your story and published it, the response starts coming in, uh, and the question about w w when you can ever leave that story or how much you can then uh, uh, not regard any story as something that's been pinpointed in time, but which is completely flexible and, and uh, has a, a completely different dimension from what we regard as a story uh, 10 years ago. Uh, and, and finally, the willingness to be completely transparent uh, about this process of journalism. So uh, uh, acknowledging that we can't be in control of that, but if we get things wrong or if things needs to be, need to be clarified, we must allow them to be clarified. That the, the, the journalism is a, a completely different process. It's not something in which we are uh, stating the truth, that we, we are allowing others to help us uh, make the truth. And, and, uh, but that's going to be a different thing from Wikipedia, so that's where, where our skills come in. Uh, there are huge challenges in, in all this, uh, and some of them overlap with some of Richard's themes about identity, about reputation, uh, about, uh, about how this conversation is moderated and who has the right to moderate that. Uh, but I'm tremendously optimistic about it. I, I think what I'm describing is something which is absolutely not the declinist model of mainstream media uh, that we've heard so much about. I think it's going to be a long journey. It's going to be... Uh, a difficult one to find business models about it, but I think unless journalism can transform itself, uh, then uh, I, I think it will become irrelevant. So I, that, that, that is just a, a, a tiny snapshot of the thinking that, that, that I think is going on uh, suddenly inside my head, uh, and I just want to end by really thanking Richard for um, being someone who is all the things that we've heard about uh, today in, in being so open to uh, ideas who has thought so deeply about things that are, that are actually central to what, what we're doing, even though he works in, in different fields, uh, and about the value that he has brought to a world in which he, he doesn't live, but in, in which his ideas are so pertinent. Well, a very um, rich, interesting, and instructive panel. hope everyone will agree. Um, I think we'll go on for about uh, at least 10 minutes more than we were going to to allow a bit of space for questions and observations. I mean, talking of Gaia and volcanoes and James Lovelock, does everyone here know um, Edward Munch's picture, The Scream? Does everyone know where it came from, why he painted it? It's much less well-known, I think. Many people think that the scream is like an expression of personal anguish, but that wasn't why he painted it. He, was, he records in his diaries, he was going out walking along the edge of the fjord in the 1890s, it was. And uh, there was this incredible bright red sunset, and he writes in his diaries, um, I felt the scream echoing through the earth. I felt the scream echoing through the earth. And uh, that sunset, as it turned out, was the result of the explosion of the volcano Krakatoa, which influenced sunsets around the world indefinitely. And to me, you know, I felt the scream echoing through the earth as a kind of metaphor, really, for the crisis of sustainability 
that the earth faces now? Well, we've got, um, we'll allow 10 minutes at least for questions. Um, I'd like each uh, person who asks a question to identify themselves. So let me look around for someone. Ah, you, sir. No. <laughs> this was prearranged. This. Not quite. Does this work? Yes. First of all, I'd like to thank you all for coming. Uh, it's a great, uh, it's a very moving occasion for me. Um, I'm learning lots of things about myself. <laughs> some good and some bad. <laughs> um, I wonder if one kind of discussion we could have about this is a curious connection between uh, Renault and uh, Alan's talk, which is uh, a lot of times when we try to make things and we appropriate them for ourselves, what we're trying to do is make something that's user-friendly to us. And um, the whole idea of Pandora is that uh, we're not in control of that process of making something uh, that's simple, easy, friendly, positive. And it, it's occurred to me that a lot of the social networking on the web has had that impulse. That is, to make something, even if people are blogging, they're slugging each other up, uh, uh, they're in a, a kind of situation where they know all the rules, but they're inside the box. And I wonder if the role for kind of disciplined journalism is to disturb that notion that people are in control of their own communication. I wonder if, rather than being more factual, of course you're always factual. <laughs> so I saw yeah. But um, that impulse to create something uh, which basically is self-referential and so self uh, is something that it's a natural impulse that we've had with technology. And maybe disturbing that uh, notion is something that professional newspaper writing will do. So it's a kind of communication which mystifies or deracinates uh, rather than informs. It's just a thought I had about the connection between. Well, that's a pretty easy one for you, Alan, if you want to briefly. <laughs> yes or no, I think. So. Well, it, 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 I'll, I'll have to go away and think about that one. Um, I mean, I, I think this issue of control is, is, is really interesting. If you, if you take my, my last point about the, the most fundamental thing about journalism, you know, correcting it. Right. Um, now, now, ten years ago, I pointed somebody on The Guardian to do that for me because I, that, it seems to be completely standard that you should correct um, and, and, and clarify. And that probably the last person on earth to do that is the person who made the mistake in the first place. So I, I, I put in place a, a system common, common in American newspapers to, so, that, so that anybody can bypass me to correct something that's in the paper. And no, no other paper in Britain has done that. Um, 
and it strikes me that that is completely due, due down to the element of control. The moment you, you allow this independent system, you lose control of your paper. So unless you're completely comfortable with that notion, you're never going to do that. So I, I think that's almost the most fundamental um, uh, aspect from, from the point of view of the publisher of, of, of control. Um, uh, as to the, the control system that I think you're, you're talking about, uh, I think it's, and, and disrupting it, I'm not sure it's quite as bad. I'm not, A, I'm not sure it's doable. Uh, and B, uh, I, I, I'm not sure I accept the, the, the premise, because people talk about uh, the, the web as, as though people are increasingly living in, in silos of their own, own making. And that's obviously partly true. But I, I think one of the encouraging things about the way information is working at the moment is that people are, are also challenging their preconceptions and can so easily dot around and, 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 and find multiple sources for things and, and not accept one source. And I, I, I would be really interested in, in, in um, something that only a, 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 a university could do, but, but researching the, the degree to which people do live in silos uh, of their own making and, and these fragmented communities versus the degree to which people are, are breaking out uh, and, and exposing themselves to multiple sources of, of information in ways that wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago. Well, let me put this another way. How is it that... Let me put this another way. How is it, do you think, that um, in public communication, uh, we can displace people from what they believed before? From what they believed before? Before. Mm. I mean, that's really a kind of fundamental issue in the public realm. Not to confirm, not to find a consensus, but what kind of communication makes somebody think, okay, I, I'm going to think differently? Well, you see, I, I think that's happening. I, I think, um, I, you know, I, I, I think it's, it is one of the great advances of the last 10 years that I, 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 I now you know, I, I know, we, we, so, you know. Let's agree there's, there's, there's lots of faults in this, this 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 system in which people can respond and and all the trolls and the abuse and the and the, the ignorance, all that. So um, you know, and we have to work out on ways of 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 improving that and, and and so on and so forth. But I think that ability instantly to challenge. I, I think that the, the pulpits that the journalists lived on, telling you what you should think, uh, are now punctured within within minutes of publication. And I think that's you know that's tremendously challenging to journalism, but but I think it, it's doing exactly what you're you're saying, and I think it's leading to a more tentative tone of voice, because writers are learning that the more dogmatic and certain and polemical they are in pushing it out, the more they get that in response, uh, and so I think some writers are becoming more tentative and saying I, I think, let me try this on you. This is what I think, uh, and it's becoming a more um, it's more, more of a dialogue, and the people are being exposed in precisely the way that you're describing. Bruno, do you want to say something quickly? Because I'd, no, I'd quite like pulpit, to make a okay, chance right, for... Right, no, please do. No, it's not about journalism, it's about classroom. I don't know what... We I, brought you here at great expense. I don't know what journalism <laughs> <laughs> What's the policy here at LSE? Do you allow kids to have a 
during the classes the wi wi Wi-Fi? I'm learning more. Because that's a, that's a very simple case, <laughs> but when you teach in a big class with everyone on the Wi-Fi, they begin to interrupt you every 10 minutes and say, what? This is not at all, I just checked while you were talking. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that's quite fine. Of course, lots of others use other things like Facebook and so on, but it has, it has a very different type of feeling when you teach in class with Wi-Fi. And some people actually in Harvard wants to stop having classes with Wi-Fi. I think it's a mistake. Yeah. Well, we'd, we'd, thank you. Would um, someone in the audience, please, or someone, um, can I ask for just um, like short questions or... Short, but rather than expositions, because yes. we've got people here who specialize in exposition. <laughs> I'm thinking of um, Mr. Latour's discussion the need for new words or the need to sort of um, shed meanings that have accumulated for certain critical terms. And I'm thinking of certain articles in The Guardian that have started to discuss things like that the human body is now capable of experiencing the change in the climate, the sort of visceral sensitivity to change from when one was born to now there's been a dramatic change. And, and wondering if there's, um, and the discussion going back to the Frankenstein and this thing where one was, you can imagine scientist is in a certain zone of creating this Frankenstein and is now watching it run away. And whether, what, how would you, is there some metaphor for this set of very difficult to name tools that you're talking about, new words, um, um, and in, what is the method or what is the model or metaphor for how the scientist, as it were, should now approach his creation? Um, I'll leave it. But like thinking also asking easy questions tonight. So. Think <laughs> Bruno, I think you should respond to that, or, or Craig. Well, I think it's, it's also... <laughs> <laughs> no, because the climate... Climate is interesting because it's for science. I mean, Tony uh, wrote a whole book about it, so he can answer that. But uh, it's, clear, it's clear that it's precisely something that you don't feel on your body, but you feel it on the very artificial built body, which is large part media, large part science, large part politics. And it's quite interesting because it's a prosthesis which allows us now to feel that the, the, the weather is, is uh, out of joint. And uh, absolutely not the sort of thing you would get synesthetically feel by yourself, because uh, who, who would know about climate change uh, just by yourself? But we have a very powerful, completely multimedia uh, prosthetic uh, system, which is, as you know, wide, widely attacked by the climate skeptics. So it's pretty interesting because the dispute is also on breaking the instrument which allows us to feel that we are now in a, in a, in a time of climate uh, change. And the climate gate actually is a nice case for uh, rethinking a lot of things about journalism as well. So uh, I'm not sure I understood exactly the question, but, uh, <laughs> but I answered it. <laughs> but yeah, I actually think this issue of the, you know, the blogosphere and the climate change skeptics is really, really interesting because the counterattack against climate change science hasn't really been led by organized interests, it's been led th from the blogosphere. And when you have a world where everyone can be an expert, what is the role of expertise in that world? How do you defend the authority of science when you can discredit scientists really quickly by people, when you read what they say, to me, you don't really know what they're talking about, but the two key scientists involved have both had to face tribunals from the university and from the state, and the proportion of people, you're asking about changing attitude, the proportion of people 
who are now skeptical about climate change science has leapt massively in many countries as a result of, I think, almost wholly the impact of the blogosphere. See, I think, you know, something really interesting and difficult going on about this. And how, there's also the issue of privacy. How can you live in a world with